what is it that makes and drives human behavior? What causes conflict? How is it that people think? What is it that, you know, uh, creates lines and tensions within organizations? There's all kinds of fascinating studies that have happened with this. One of the things, and this was a really early on organizational psychology study, it's called the, the Hawthorne Studies. <clears throat> and I know there's a few of you in this room who actually know what I'm talking about. And it was fascinating because it was one of the first, as I said, workplace environments where they, they brought in Harvard psychologists to observe this manufacturing company. And what they did is they were messing with the lights. They wanted to see what's the optimal amount of light that you need to do your work. And so they were kind of manufacturing stuff and, and they would start out with the lights pretty high and they'd lower them and lower them and lower them. Eventually it was basically pitch black. And they're like, man, no matter how dark it is, employees keep improving their productivity. What is going on? Well, you know what's going on? When you have a bunch of Harvard professors watching you work, guess what you do? You work. Right? So anyone who has kids, you know if your kid needs to clean their room, what do you need to do as a parent? You need to stand there and watch them. Right? The minute you turn your back, they're out with new toys. Right? So this is a fundamental thing about, about psychology. So that's, that's one part. But I've always been endlessly fascinated by human behavior. Right? So why do we make the choices that we make? And so we love to think that we're these rational actors, that we're these people that, hey, I actually know what it is that I'm doing. Sometimes that's true, but a lot of times it's not, right? So we're getting into the, the warm season of spring and summer, although by the weather we've had recently, you wouldn't know that that was actually coming. But what do we do? We go on spring break, we go on summer vacation, and we go to the ocean. Now, I don't know about you, but when I go to the ocean, as much as I love being in the ocean, what do I actually think of when I get into the water, right? I think of Jaws. Right? We all sort of, uh, do, I, do I really want to step into this? And so here's the fun part about psychology. We are so utterly concerned about Jaws when, in fact, we should actually be concerned about this guy right here. Um, that's right, Bambi. You're 40 to 60 times more likely to be killed by Bambi than you are by any shark. Who here is afraid of Bambi? No one, right? We cry because Bambi's mom got shot. By the way, spoiler alert, sorry if I've ruined that movie. So this is called probability neglect. And it's one of the things in human behavior that, that we do that just says, uh, hey, you know, maybe I don't actually know what's happening. We tend to value negative news more. Um, so while this is fun and, and interesting to talk about, my, my true work is in organizational development and leadership. So those tend to be the areas that I focus on. And so I spend a lot of time working with leaders and, and teaching them how to develop and how to acquire new skills. And a lot of times, we just assume that, hey, you know, leaders are born. Leaders just do what leaders do. And there's some truth to that. But the reality is we all get better at time if we work towards it. And so because of this, one of my major areas of interest has always been expertise. What makes somebody great at what they do? And so one of the things that makes people great, makes them true experts, is their ability to see and sit in the present and be observant of things that you and I miss. So if you're ever with like a true expert, whether that's an expert about beer or whether it's an expert about sports or work, they see things that you and I don't see. And so um, 
that's something that, that draws them into the moment. Now, before we go any further, let's pray. God, we invite you into this time. We know that as our dad, you care so much about each one of us. And as our king, you have a mission for us. So, Dad, we ask that you give us what we need. Forgive us where we fall short. Help us to walk the path of being present. To be aware of you at all times and to not fall away because we're challenged, attacked, or hurting. Protect us in those moments. I ask this in Jesus' name. So what drives expertise? What's that fundamental thing that that moves us forward? The reality is experts disagree, right? Isn't that ironic? Uh, But one of the major components of expertise is simply this. It's the ability to be present. And so when you're present, you're able to recognize the significance of events. Charles Goodyear, as the story goes, he figured out how to make rubber because he had failed time and time and time again. And as, again, the story goes, he threw this chunk of rubber that wasn't actually, you know, squishy and rubbery like we think of rubber. And he was frustrated, and he threw it against the fire, and it hit the flame, hit the hot stove, and we now have this process called vulcanization. It's actually heat was the missing element. You and I could throw clumps of rubber at stoves all day and not recognize the significance. But because he had become an expert... He saw that interaction. And so when I think about Jesus, I think this is one of the things that he makes us do. He wants us to um, make this kind of distinction. There's no middle ground in Jesus. There's no way that he kind of gives us an out. Jesus wants us to see the pattern in our lives and the meaning in him, right? So he wants us to be forced on this, this conversation of expertise. Now, This is something that I learned the hard way. You see, I grew up in church, like maybe many of you have grown up in church. I went to church every day, did some kids' club, volunteering, all that type of stuff. Then I went to college. And what did I do in college? I did what pretty much everyone does in college, and that's I stopped believing. Right? I became an atheist. And for a long time, I was an atheist. And I'll tell you what, here's a little secret that they don't talk about a lot, and and maybe David's not going to ever invite me back. Those were some of the best years of my life right? Shh, don't tell anyone in church. It was awesome. And I had so much fun. Um, But all good things must come to an end. And I became a believer. I only kid partially there. And you're going to see what I mean by this. But when I became a Christian, and, and you know, it's a story for another day, but when I became a believer, I realized, hey, you know what? Saying I believe in Jesus and living how I'm living are two different things. I've got to figure out how do I merge these things together? How do I recognize the choice that Jesus is presenting to me? And how do I embrace that? So as a believer, the way I interact with others matters. My posture to this world matters. And that's why sin is so bad. You know, we talk about sin, and, and sometimes it's like this big, long to-do, like not-to-do list. That's not really the point. The point is, sin is anti-posture. It's, it's slouching. And so, last week, David talked about this idea of carousing, right? So, I, I learned two things from that. One, I didn't know David knew such big words like that. 
two, I started to think about what does this really mean, right? Carousing is all about doing things that might be good in and of themselves, but to an extreme or at an inappropriate time. What happens when we start taking on things that we shouldn't or start doing things that are harmful to us? It actually harms our posture. <clears throat> One of the fascinating things about uh, human behavior is that when you don't feel a lot of stress in your life, when you feel really good about life, you know, how do we describe that? We use phrases like what? There's a skip in your step or you feel light, right? So we're actually talking about this physical thing. But when you talk about stress, oh, I'm burdened, right? Ah, the weight of the world is upon me. And what do we do when we feel burdened? We physically slouch. There's a spiritual element of slouching that comes into play when we carry stuff or do things that we're not supposed to. And so I want to talk today about these, these three postures. Now, the, the Bible presents lots of different postures. You know, there's the posture of obedience, there's a posture of trust, there's a posture of suffering. But I want to talk about uh, some other things here. And so, you see, for me, there's more to my story. And my story starts with this little guy right here. Uh, so, this is my son, this is Eli. Uh, David and Amanda will recognize this picture because this is actually from their wedding. Um, he's cute and adorable. Uh, this is a, a slightly newer picture. And what you'll see here is that he's still cute and adorable, right? And so when Eli was born, uh, he, we were told, actually before he was born, we were told, hey, you know what? Your son has club foot. Your son is going to have Down syndrome. And we carried this, this weight. And so I'll never forget, like, this day is as, as vibrant in my memory as anything. We were at Bethesda North. Uh, my wife and I were getting our first ultrasound. And if you've ever had an ultrasound, if you've ever had a kid, you kind of uh, can place yourself there. And, and we thought that everything went great, right? We're like, look, it's a boy. We can tell we're so excited. And we were just kind of giddy with that enthusiasm. And I remember the ultrasound tech was like, hey, I just got to go talk to the doctor for a second, and then we'll get you right out of here. And she left the room. And, and for those two or three minutes, man, my wife and I were so excited. It was one of the greatest moments of my entire life. And then the doctor comes back in. And again, uh, you know, as a psychologist, I could tell this wasn't something that was going to end well just by his body language. And so he comes up and he says, uh, we need to talk. That is not good. And here's a pro tip. If you go, uh, you know, to the, uh, get an ultrasound and they say, hey, I just want to talk to the doctor, I have learned that that is a bad thing. Um, and so when, when they came back and he says, you know, hey, we need to talk, he said, your son has club foot. And I said, uh, he's, uh, so my mind is racing. There's all these things going on. And, and I start thinking, what does this mean? Why us? What's going on here? And, and the doctor says, do you have any questions? Yeah, I've got like 3,000 questions. And so I found myself blurting out. I, I said, what does this mean? And he said, well, let's talk about what causes clubfoot. And he says, Down syndrome. Man, you know those movies where you see somebody, they have like this bad moment or there's like that, that pulling away of the camera and the world slows down? I had that, I had the falling of the pit, like all those things that you imagine, like that moment of time stopping, that's what I experienced. And I felt my world being rocked, and I didn't know what to do. 
And so we went through all this fear and turmoil. And I remember leaving that appointment and thinking, man, we have got to do something. We've got to take action. So this brings us to our first posture, the posture of action. And what we see is there's a Roman centurion uh, who interacts with Jesus. No little context about Roman centurions. They were very, very powerful people, right? In ancient Rome, they didn't have a lot of checks and balances. You know, there was no, like, paparazzi who was going to, you know, put them on YouTube if they did something bad. Uh, If a centurion came up to you and wanted to squash you, as long as that didn't create a giant rebellion, Rome was like, eh, it's the cost of doing business, right? And so Roman centurions were very powerful people. And so let's check out uh, Matthew 8, 5 through 13, and we'll see what's happening here. So when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? Now let's pause for a moment. Anytime God or Jesus asks you a question, you need to be on your toes, right? It's not because they don't actually know what's happening. They don't, it's not like they're like, maybe they're going to be surprised by the answer. No, right? They know what's about to happen. What they're looking for is your reaction. What are you going to do? So the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes. And I tell that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And the servant was healed at that moment. Do you see the centurion's posture? He does two things that are important. One, he seeks out Jesus. The Bible consistently affirms going after God and asking God for stuff. And that's what we see the centurion doing. The second thing, and this is really where I want to focus, is he says this. He says, I'm a man of authority. I know that if I say go, people go. And he says essentially, how much more for you? Action doesn't mean control. It doesn't mean micromanaging. It doesn't mean forcing people to do stuff. Action means getting stuff done. Action means recognizing what is it that I have to do to get the wheels in motion. The centurion knew Jesus didn't have to be physically present. He knew Jesus was powerful enough to just say, let it be done. That's all it took. So coming back to Eli, we, we left the hospital, we left Bethesda North, and I knew immediately that, hey, I was going to have to get people mobilized. I was going to have to bring people together and say, let's get things done. I had to take this posture of action. And so I went home uh, that night, probably within an hour of coming back from Bethesda. I had emailed probably 40 people, right? And our criteria was, who else has a posture of action in our life? Who else, if I say, will you pray for my son? They'll say yes, Right? We all know people that it's like, hey, will you pray for me? And the kind of Christian response is sure. And then you go about your day and you don't do it, right? We know that's kind of polite Christianese. I didn't want those people. 
right? If they're going to pray, great. I accept all kinds of prayer. But I wanted the people who had that posture of action. And I'll tell you what, it was amazing. Because not only did those people respond, they reached out to their friends who had postures of action. And so even before Eli was born, we had people literally around the world praying for him. We had churches in India, churches in Ireland, churches in Australia, all praying for my little boy. And so this was the posture of action. And it was amazing. But of course, stories never quite end like this, right? There's always a little bit more. There's more to, to have action um, that, than, than just that. And so for us, our story kind of takes this divergence. So we had all these people pray, like I just said. And when my son was born, he didn't have Down syndrome. The doctor was wrong. Or maybe the doctor was right and God performed a miracle. I don't know. But what I do know is my boy was born healthy. And I remember, too, one of the other things that uh, Eli had was some problems with his kidneys. And the doctor was like, you know, if when he's born, if he pees, he'll be all right. If he doesn't pee, it's uh, kidney dialysis for the rest of his life. Oh, okay. And so I remember thinking, like, the, the nurse, right when Eli was born, the nurse was like, do you want to hold him? And I'm like, no, I want that kid to pee, <laughs> right? And so... I've never been so excited to see somebody else do that. Um, and so, again, so we dodged that bullet, right? And so all of these things, we're like, wow, this is amazing. This posture of action drives so much. God is so good, and God is good. But there's more. So sometimes we can be impulsive, right? We can drive forward. We can do too many things. And, and by the way, if you don't know a friend of yours who's impulsive— and possibly reckless, that's because that's you. <laughs> but we all know somebody who's impulsive and reckless and maybe too action-oriented. And this is why it brings us to this other posture. Now, we think of Moses as this great leader, someone who commanded the Israelites and did all of these amazing uh, miracles. But that's not actually who Moses started out to be. Moses started out to be impulsive, uh, uh, aggressive, maybe even reckless, right? He, he killed somebody in a fight and that forced him to give up being a prince and becoming a shepherd. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think going from a princely life to a shepherding life is like, you know, the way you, you're supposed to roll your life. So let's take a look here in Exodus 3. It says, uh, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and he came to the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames from the fire within the bush. Moses saw that through the bush, though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see the strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Did you catch that? I think this is so fascinating. Moses is hanging out, and he's watching this bush. We don't know much about this bush. It just says it was burning and not being consumed. Now, this is taking place in a desert. I don't know about you, but deserts catch things on fire, right? This is not like Moses is like, wow, a fire on a bush. I've never seen that before, right? This is commonplace for Moses. What happens, though, is Moses sees that the bush is not being consumed. 
Moses has gone from this impulsive, um, potentially reckless person to being forced to be in this posture of waiting. And he's sitting there and watching this bush. Now, we don't know if this bush has been burning for an hour or a day or a month. It's just been burning. And eventually Moses, out of this posture of waiting, is like, wow, this is strange. Let me go investigate. How much do we miss in our own lives because we can't stay in a posture of waiting? Where we're like, oh man, what's on TV or what's on my phone? And, and you know, I'm as guilty as anyone. Maybe I am more guilty than you. Right? Give me 10 seconds of solitude, and I'm like, great, what's on Facebook? Right? And I pull out that phone. And I can't help but wonder, what am I missing that God is trying to tell me? How many burning bushes do I walk past because I'm like this? I don't know, because I walk past them. But this, this challenges me. And so there's this posture of waiting. Now, I know that the posture of waiting is difficult because the posture of waiting can often feel like abandonment. And so I wonder, how did Moses feel? He was a prince, and now he's tending a flock, not even his flock, but his father-in-law's flock. Is he like, God, where are you? What have you done? Why am I here? I know those are the questions that I would rescue with, or wrestle with. And to be honest, that's what I do wrestle with with my own son. See, I thought our action had taken care of him. I thought that by mobilizing all these people together in prayer, that my son would be healed. He was of those things, and life was really great until nine months ago. When on Memorial Day, we were having a party, we had all these people over, and my son just grabbed his head in pain and started crying and screaming, and we didn't know what was wrong with him, so we rushed him down to the emergency room at Children's. And so we took him to children's, and, and they basically said, hey, he has a migraine. And, and it, it led us on this, this path. And so we began to think, you know, what is wrong with Eli? Is there something that was driving all this other stuff? And so my wife, we've experienced sleepless nights. We've experienced stress. We've experienced anger. We've questioned, God, where are you? We've, you know, we've lost weight from stress. We've gained weight from stress. We've lost weight from stress. And I'm working on gaining weight again. And so we're, you know, we're all over the place on these things. And I'll tell you what, and this is hard to say, especially up here, right? God has never been quieter in my life than he is right now. It's hard. There's no sense that God's hand is on me. There's no sense that my son is going to be healed. There's no sense that I can figure out what to do next. God is silent. And I struggle with that. And then I think, what does this mean? And I begin to read my Bible, and what I see is that there's countless stories of people in the Bible who are forced into a posture of waiting. Whether it's Moses, whether it's David, whether it's Job, whether it's Lazarus, whether it's the disciples. Man, everyone who gets close to Jesus, at some point, God says, wait. And so this brings us to our last posture, because waiting forces us to do this last thing. If you're really seeking after God, this forces us to do this last thing. And this is the posture of presence. And so we see this in the story of Mary and Martha. And what we see out of Luke 10, 38 to 42, 
I'll read a little bit of this. It says, As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that the Lord had made. And she came to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by himself? Tell her to help me. But Jesus does something interesting, and he basically says, Martha, Mary's the one who has this figured out, not you. I don't know about you, but I identify not with Mary in this story. I identify with Martha. I'm the person who wants to take action. I'm the person who, if there's a list of stuff to do, that I want to get it done. We're having our small group come over to our house tonight, um, and I left my wife and three kids at home, uh, and I know that when I get back from this, guess what we have to do? We have to clean. There's preparations for this big dinner. That's the pressure that Martha uh, felt. And so... Jesus is saying, Martha, this is all important. This is all good stuff. Jesus is not discouraging service, by the way, because the story right before this is the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus is pro-serving other people, pro-sacrifice, pro-doing these things. In this case, what Jesus is really saying is, you need to dwell with me. You need to be present in the moment. You need to experience what we're experiencing. You see, Jesus is always a little bit of a rebel. He's always a little bit of uh, kind of pushing against what we expect from the culture. And so even in this story, the phrase when he talks about Mary or the story when it talks about Mary uh, saying sat and listened, that's a phrase that's usually reserved for referring to disciples. She was basically on par with the disciples receiving teaching. And I think Martha was jealous. I think Martha said, I'm stuck doing all the work and Mary's getting all the fun and that's not fair. Have we ever felt that? Have we ever felt like somebody else is getting something that we deserve? And so Martha's distraction is what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, hey, you know what? You need to cut all this other stuff out of your life and you need to dwell. You need to say, hey, there's a place for action and there's a place for waiting but there's this posture of presence that is so important. Martha simply cannot be present with Jesus because she is distracted. So friends, I know that most sermons, they give you these three points, right? I did. There's these posture of action, posture of waiting, posture of presence. And then, uh, you know, they, they teach you that the next thing you should do is wrap it up in a nice little bow and send everyone on their way. I wish I had that for you because I don't have a way to do that, right? I believe in these things because I chose these three postures because these are the things that I'm wrestling with. These are the things that I know God is calling me to, and it's hard because in two weeks, Eli has brain surgery. In two weeks, we're going to cause him to have a surgery that will permanently restrict his life. As a parent, how do you wrestle with that? As a Christian, how do I wrestle with God loves me and I've got this other horrible thing going on? And so we expect good things for Eli. We think that this will heal him. We think this will bring a lot of uh, help to him. But I'm left here thinking about Mary. What is it? that Mary might not know or might know that I might not know. And I think it's this. 
I think Mary in the moment knew she might not get another chance with Jesus. I think she recognized, hey, in this moment, I may never have another way to sit and listen to my Lord teach me. And she seized it. She didn't walk past the burning bush. She took action and that posture of recognizing that that bush was burning and did something about it. She was present. She was able to dwell. So for me, standing here before you guys, this is my opportunity to seize that burning bush, to take that action, to dwell in the moment, because it's not every day you get to get up and talk about who Jesus is to people. It's not every day that you get to understand the beauty of the cross. And David talked about it with communion. Um, Jesus did what he asks us to do. He took a posture of suffering and a posture of submission and took the hit that you and I deserve, and he didn't. He knows, God knows what it means to surrender a son. So when I think, what am I supposed to do with my own son? All I have to turn to is God and say, what was it like for you? And I know uh, in in a strange way, if anyone suffers more than my wife and I with this burden with Eli, it's God. He's the one who feels maybe more pain than even my wife and I do. And so, friends, whatever burden you're carrying, how heavy or how light, just know that it was never meant to go past the cross. You were never meant to carry the weight on your shoulders to make you slouch. Jesus said, I will carry that weight so that you don't have to. And so, don't let the distractions of this world burden you down. Don't let them walk past your burning bush. What is the thing that you're supposed to be waiting for? What is the thing you should be dwelling? How are you spending that time with Jesus? There's beauty to be had in suffering. There's beauty to be had in Eli's suffering. He allows me to do things that I could not have done otherwise. Right? This message would be different without Eli. He opens doors to talk about the kingdom in ways that I could never do. And so there's beauty in all of that. And there's beauty to be had in waiting, and there's beauty to be had in action. So there's beauty to be had in whatever it is that you're wrestling with. Don't run from it. Dwell in it. So my challenge to you is this. What kind of posture do you want for your life? What kind of posture are you going to leave this room and take? Let me close in prayer. Father, I just thank you for this time. Thank you for these people who have taken a posture of seeking and service. It is amazing to just see your kingdom come alive. And so, God, I ask that you honor their posture, you honor our posture, and you bring us a taste of the kingdom for the rest of the week. Amen.